So uh, while I was away last week, we took a little break from the Book of Lamentations, which we've been studying throughout Lent. And uh, I'm sure for many of you, it was a welcomed reprieve, right, from, <laughs> from this book that is, we've been discovering is uh, full of some pretty heavy stuff. There's no way around it. Uh, Lamentations makes us pretty uncomfortable if we, if we take it uh, at its word and take it for, what it, I think, what it's doing. In the first two chapters that we read during the first two weeks of, of Lent, we met these two different characters. They were uh, the narrator and this woman, daughter Zion, who was the personification of the city of Jerusalem, which now lies in ruins. And so far in, in those first two chapters, uh, the pain and the despair and the anguish was just unrelenting. Hope was largely absent. God, We saw God characterized in ways that were probably deeply uncomfortable for us, that uh, even may have kind of offended our modern pious sensibilities about who God is and, and how, how God acts. And uh, these kinds of stories or descriptions about God can uh, send us kind of scrambling to find a way to read the text uh, to say something that the text itself has no interest in saying. Like we, we want, to, want to make it a little bit more palatable, right? To, to be able to ingest a little bit easier. And that's understandable that we would do that. I think it goes back uh, a little bit to our conversation the first week about the culture of denial that we live in. And the church is not precluded from that. Um, and, and that can affect the way that we read the Bible, that we want to kind of smooth over these tensions, that we want to uh, pass over these kind of paradoxes uh, very easily. You know, if something doesn't quite fit with what we think or expect from the Bible, then we have to find a way to make it work for us. But, as I've uh, tried to communicate throughout this study, and, and I think we'll continue to hit on, um, the book of Lamentations is not a book that offers us any easy answers. It doesn't offer this kind of smoothed out idea of who God is or how God acts. And so in today's reading, we meet a new character who is distinct from the narrator and daughter Zion, though this character is unnamed. Some scholars will refer to him as the strong man because of uh, the Hebrew designation that he is given, which is Geber, which has to do with uh, a man who is specifically charged with the protection of women, children, and other non-combatants. So he's supposed to protect these, these groups of people who can't protect themselves, essentially. But this strong man seems to have failed in his duty. He, he, uh, as we saw, that the city lies in ruins. He did not protect those who needed protecting. There are many who have been slaughtered, many who have been sent off into the far reaches of the empire. He feels like a failure. And so like, like daughter Zion, like we saw with her, he, we see him, in the, particularly in the first part of, of chapter 3, kind of struggling to, to place blame, trying to figure out, is this something that I did wrong or we as a community did wrong? Or has God wronged us? Is God unjust? Is, is God acting unjustly? So he begins his speech, much like daughter Zion did, with this kind of long complaint that is directed at God. And then... After 18 verses of sheer despair and heartache and accusation, he says this. This is from Lamentations 3, uh, verses 19 to 42. He says, The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. 
My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul that seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for one to bear the yoke in youth, to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it, to put one's mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope. To give one's cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. For the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. When all the prisoners of the land are crushed underfoot, when human rights are perverted in the presence of the Most High, when one's case is subverted, does the Lord not see it? Who can command and have it done if the Lord has not ordained it? It is not from the mouth of the most is it not from the mouth of the most high that good and bad come? Why should anyone who draws breath complain about the punishment of their sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts as well as our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. So this is probably the moment that we've all been waiting for, right? That moment that we've kind of been yearning for as we've slowly trudged through these now three chapters of Lamentations. This is finally the moment where we are reminded, even if just briefly, just this slight glimmer, that there is hope. That moment that we can finally say, see, look, it's not all doom and gloom in this book. You know, just like every other book in the Bible, this book is fundamentally about hope. Scholars uh, have often noted that this brief stanza about hope is situated almost in the dead center of the poems of the Book of Lamentations. Remember, there are five poems in the books, and this being the third poem makes it kind of the central poem, right? And then it's, uh, this, this stanza about hope is surrounded by two other poetic stanzas, which makes it also the kind of poetic center of this uh, poem. So some have argued exactly that, that, that the structure of the book as a whole and, and the structure of this poem in particular makes hope the central theme of this book that this is a poetic device intended to draw the reader's attention to what is at the center. And, you know, I think this makes good sense, right? Since we know, we know very well that these poems, these five poems were very, very carefully crafted. And this turn from lament to hope is rather common in the Hebrew Bible. We see it uh, very often, particularly in the Psalms. But interestingly, Lamentations doesn't quite follow the pattern for psalms of lament that you would expect. Psalms of lament tend to move from lament to hope to praise. 
In this third chapter, the, the strong man's speech, he never quite makes it to praise. It, it's actually rather interesting. Strangely, he moves from a lament to hope and then back to lament. It's actually quite startling because as soon as the poem takes this turn, right, we've, we've been taught to kind of uh, anticipate where it's going, to expect what's coming next. Uh, next. As soon as hope bursts onto the scene, we expect that he may call the people to repentance, which he does, and then after that, praise God for God's faithfulness and mercy and steadfast love. But instead, after his expression of hope and after his call to repentance of the people, he returns to saying these things of lament. Like he, he calls God out again and says this, You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing us without pity. You have, you have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. So that hope that was once so robust and so exuberant, that was just right there, seems to have dissipated as suddenly and unexpectedly as it arrived. And he continues along this trajectory, much like Daughter Zion in chapter 1, vacillating between accepting blame for what has happened and then, on the other hand, blaming God, accusing God of being unjust, and then ultimately, like Daughter Zion, calling on God to punish his enemies, those who did this to him. He says, pay them back for their deeds, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. And reading, like, and reading statements like this can be rather jarring for us, I mean, especially coming from the Bible, hearing these holy words crying out for vengeance, for revenge. Right? What, what place do calls for vengeance have in the life of Christians? Is this an appropriate expression of faith? But this, I think, is, is part of the beauty of the book. Not, not that it necessarily shows us what is appropriate or inappropriate, but that it gives an honest, even if sometimes irreverent and unpalatable view of what it means to be human. This is a book that is not afraid to say what is otherwise deemed inappropriate, but is nonetheless a part of the human experience. Calls for vengeance in the Bible can make us deeply uncomfortable and force us to go into all sorts of interpretive gymnastics to make it a little bit easier for us to read. Like, for instance, in Psalm 137, which is a psalm, much like Lamentations, that was uh, written in the wake of exile and captivity, right? Same kind of event that we're dealing with here. And in that psalm, the psalmist cries out to God, O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. This may be one of the most unsettling verses in the entire Bible. But what it does, I think, is hold up a mirror for us and forces us to see the things within ourselves that we would rather ignore or even deny. For instance, whenever we hear uh, more devastating news about the awful and atrocious acts that are being perpetrated around the world by people like ISIS, the conversation uh, very very often, even among deeply loving and passionate Christians, often uh, will turn very quickly to cries for revenge, for vengeance, cries for blood, right? 
and, and, and devolves into this speech about them that questions whether or not they're even human, whether they were also made in God's image. In the wake of 9-11, which we would all agree is this truly abominable act, the rhetoric was so fierce and these calls for revenge were so loud that it led us, perhaps sometimes unwittingly, to justify all sorts of things we would have never previously considered. There were multiple so-called revenge killings that happened in America to American citizens um, simply because of the way they looked or the way they dressed. Now, the unfortunate irony of, of those was that many of those revenge killings happened to people who identify as uh, Sikhs. They follow the religion Sikhism, who were not only not Muslim, but were not even from the same part of the world as the perpetrators of these attacks. Now, all this is to sim simply to say that as uncomfortable as some of these expressions are, these calls for vengeance are, they actually give voice to a reality that is within each of us, if we are honest. Even if they are deeply unsettling, like it or not, this is a part of our story. This is who we are. Yet in the midst of these complaints and laments and calls for revenge is also this expression of profound hope. And it is a hope that, given its surroundings and the historical context in which it was written, is completely inexplicable and even a bit irrational. The turn in the poetry is abrupt. It seemingly appears out of nowhere. After his, his long lament and complaint, the strong man immediately turns and says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He remembers God's steadfast love. He remembers the renewal of God's mercies and therefore he has hope. He remembers hope, even at the lowest possible point, when he is far past rock bottom, when he is past the depths of suffering that he thought possible. For some reason, at this point, he remembers. He remembers, and he has hope. The abrupt shifts in tone are odd and, and unexpected. It raises all sorts of questions about how we should read this poem and the Book of Lamentations as a whole. Because we expect that once the tone shifts from despair to hope, that will stay there, right? That, that hope will sustain us. That hope will remain our constant companion and will not leave throughout the remainder of the book. But that hope that was once so bold and, and tactile ultimately seems rather fleeting because it does not last. But perhaps the problem is not so much with the text itself, but with how we understand hope and also how we understand grief. Right? We, we expect hope to stick around once it shows up because most of us live with this, I think, unfortunate idea that if you have hope, it will drive out all of those other emotions. Right? Hope will drive out once and for all, doubt and fear and anguish and bitterness and hopelessness and so on. You either have hope or you have these other things. But that's not how we work. That's not, that's not how hope operates in the real world, in real human beings. Once again, the author of Lamentations gives us an honest look at what it means to be human. 
The only expression of hope in the entire book of Lamentations is sandwiched between these two stanzas of absolute despair and accusation. Because this is how hope often works. Unfortunately, we, we tend to think of those three chief theological virtues, right? Faith, hope, and love. We think of them as kind of mutually exclusive things, right? Like if you have those things, there's no room for doubt. There's no room for anger or despair. And we tell people who grieve, whether implicitly or explicitly, that their expressions of grief are in some way unfaithful because they're not trusting God enough. Part of the problem, I think, is, is how we understand the grieving process. You're, you're probably familiar with uh, the idea, this kind of popular idea of the five stages of grief, right? You have denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And we often conceive of this as like a, a linear process. That is that you begin at one end and then kind of progress linearly through to the end and that you will ultimately reach acceptance. And once you get there, you're fine and everything is good and we can all move on and that's great. But this is just not how it works for many, if not most people. The grieving process, which the strong man is very clearly embedded in, that process is rarely so linear and rarely so cut and dry. Grief is unpredictable. The categories often overlap with one another. You may jump from stage to stage seemingly at random. It is not logical or ordered. Grief does not follow the plans that we have set for it. And as paradoxical as it may sound, you can even experience acceptance and anger at the same time. You can experience bargaining and denial at the same time, or any, any combination of those things that you can think of. And as the author of Lamentation shows us, the same is true of hope. Hope can exist alongside despair. Hope does not necessarily assume a lack of fear or denial. Hope, crazy as it may sound, can even sometimes be accompanied by hopelessness. All of these complex emotions sit side by side with one another and exist next to one another. The strong man, like us, moves in and out of hope and despair, trust and fear, faith and doubt. But we struggle with this tension, and we would prefer to smooth it out, right? As much as we might not want to admit it, we truly crave those kinds of easy answers that, that smooth over uh, those rough places. You know, we, we love to hear uh, the testimonies of people who, you know, say, well, like, I, I was once a drug addict who hit rock bottom, and then I met Jesus, and everything changed. And those are wonderful, amazing beautiful, transformative stories that should be celebrated, absolutely. But that's not everyone's story. Some of us, even though we have profound hope in the grace of Christ and the sovereignty of God, are still plagued by fear, are still haunted by unsettling questions. Some of us are still grieving the loss of loved ones, but are afraid to express that grief because, according to the church's dominant theology, we should be over it by now. We should have moved on. Some of us will still struggle with addiction because, believe it or not, Jesus is not a magical potion that heals wounds immediately after we pray this magical prayer of salvation. That's just 
not how life works. But the God we worship is the author of life and the author of hope. But God's work is not complete. Redemption has come and is still yet to come. We live in a world of paradox, a world of tension. We are redeemed yet fallen. We were made in the image of God, yet we are broken. Death has been defeated, yet its effects are still felt. We have hope, yet we still despair. True hope, like the hope expressed by the strong man, is more than simple optimism or wishful thinking. My, my former professor, Kathleen O'Connor, uh, says it like this in her book on lamentation. She writes, It emerges like grace without explanation. In the midst of despair and at the least point of hope, it comes from elsewhere, unbidden, elusive, uncontrollable and surprising, given in the pit, the place of no hope. Hope appears, flags, disappears as if forever, reemerges and fades again as the light changes. So for us, I think, in this season of Lent, we are reminded that we are being led to that day of ultimate hope, that day of the empty tomb, the celebration of the resurrection. But we should not be so deceived as to assume that once we celebrate that empty tomb, once we get there, that place that is the ground of all our hope, that our questions will be answered and all our grief will be dispelled, our despair satisfied or our fear alleviated. To be human means to live in this paradox of life and to embrace hope wherever it appears and however it strikes us. No matter where you are right now, whether at the lowest of lows or the highest of highs, remember, like the strong man, remember hope. No matter how dark the night or how deep the pit, remember hope. Remember that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. Amen.